Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Following a little trend that I think I've had on Tej Talks so far, I've got another guest on the show who really, really loves design and actually has a slightly different design to some of the others on the show, say like May Green or Fat Properties, who have their own kind of style. Stuart Scott's design, I would kind of describe as uh, industrial meets Shoreditch meets kind of chic, but really, really high quality, funky interiors. And you know what? For him, it's it's about co-living. It's about, you know, a HMO is a technical term, which it is. But actually, you know, if you live in one, you probably wouldn't call it that if you're a tenant. You know, when I speak to my friends, they say, oh, I share a flat, I share a house. And I'm like, oh, HMO. They're like, what? So for him, it's about co-living. And how do we, you know, create a culture and a movement, perhaps, of what, you know, co-living spaces and HMO should look like? He's award-winning. He's been in YPN magazine, and this is a really, really good episode if you're interested in HMOs and the design and actually how spending a little bit more money on design can lead to a much uh, better outcome, I think, in terms of how tenants look after it and also for building your brand. You know, really nice interiors are much prettier to look at than, you know, Magnolia. No offence, Magnolia. Stuart Scott, welcome to the Tesh Talks podcast. Hello, how are you doing? I am very well, thank you. I'm really excited to have you here. You are a multiple award winner. Your interior designs, and I know everyone listening can't see them, but I'll put a link in the show notes, looks awesome. It's got a really nice vibe and feel to it. And you were featured in quite a few different media outlets and got quite a bit of PR coverage. So before we get into all of that, I'd love to know, what were you doing before property? Uh, Before property? um, Well, I was a... I've worked most of my life in the kind of marketing and advertising agencies, and I eventually started my own marketing agency myself. I built that company up, um, and that company was acquired by another company, and then I started and built a product design company. So I was kind of a, a design entrepreneur, I guess, building you know busy company director and. Uh, I I had always been the you know running the uh, user research teams, the creative director, art director, in, in kind of all of those you know roles of running the businesses. So I, what I've really done is I've taken the same design thinking uh, methodologies and principles, and and I've basically pivoted and I've I've moved that same innovation mindset into the property world. So then what? you know, doing quite an interesting and exciting and high pressure job. What made you then switch into property and kind of put all of that to the side or in the past? Um, well, all the time I was a uh, running my own company, all the time I was a company director, the dividends, the extra dividends that I would get at the end of the year, or, you know, like the, the, the you know, the, the, the chunk of profit on top of your, your, your salary that, that, you know, the director is, is due taking all the risk. Um, I would invest that in property. And so over the kind of 10 odd years that I was building those two companies, I was kind of flipping property on the side. I would buy property, I would do it up, I would add value, location, location, all, you know, all of the you know the standard stuff, uh, very high end. 
And then, you know, every project that we worked on would probably be between 50 to 100,000 profit. So we, we only did very safe um, uh, projects, but the we, that was something that was happening in the background. And I think along the journey, I realized that I was probably making as much money from <laughs> from doing the property that I was being a busy company director. And and I think as 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 the companies grew, I think, you know, I really like the startup phase of, of businesses. But when it starts, uh, you know, when you're kind of like 20, 30 plus people, it's, it's really just HR. Um, and so, of course, you know, I, I didn't really enjoy that as much. So I think I gradually kind of gravitated to wanting to follow my passion rather than just um, growing a business past Series B or C or D. Hmm. And how did you exit the business? Did you sell it off or? Well, well actually, the first, the first uh, my marketing agency, I sold that uh, because that was acquired. But the second company, I exited and I'm still a major shareholder. Hmm. Okay, so it's still kind of running in the background with someone else in charge. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my previous co-directors is 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 building that and that is being built for sale. Mm, okay, interesting. And so obviously you started off with your your own cash that you got from those dividends and you were flipping yeah. properties. And what area do you live and invest in? Well, it's in the southeast, so it's you know very uh, you know very similar to London. It's a very it's a hot market, which you know means it's you know, it's quite expensive. There's a lot of demand, uh, but it's very difficult to find the stock. So yeah, I, I live in Brighton and Hove. So I grew up just outside Brighton and Hove. So I, I know the area very well. In fact, I used to come to Brighton and Hove. You know, I was a skater when I grew up, when I was when I was a kid, and we you know the, the Brighton was like the mecca. For, for the best skate parks so we used to come here all the time and then as soon as I was old enough I you know I moved uh, into Brighton and then I kind of grew up in the area so uh, I I think um, it was probably natural that I would want to try and um, make the biggest difference in the in the area that I've spent the most time yeah no absolutely and then you know as you were flipping these properties every year did you have any sort of formal education or was it a case of this is kind of straightforward I'm just going to get it done every year I I think we just rolled up our sleeves and we just got in and did it. I mean, me and my wife are serial renovators, so we, you know, there was in the early days we did a lot of stuff ourselves. I mean, I know that's obviously ridiculous to do all that now, but you know, back in back in the day, you know, we would we would um, relish the thought of buying new tools <laughs> and and uh, getting started onto some new area that we didn't know about. Um, but you know, the reality is when you're when you're managing multiple projects and you're doing it professionally, you you can't be touching the tools at all. Yeah. Okay. So then at one point you thought, yep, let me follow my passion now instead of doing what has become a, a HR job. You exited the second business. And then what made you decide to go for HMOs in particular? Well, actually, that was a, just a very strategic move more than anything. It was, we, you know, I looked at the, I think we realized, I, well, one of the first things I did is I got myself a mentor. I looked at all the various different trainings that are out there, but I, I realized that I wanted a one-to-one mentor. I mean, the reason I did that was because in the previous businesses, we always had non-exec chairman and non-exec chairman are people that come into a business, basically paid very high paid consultants. They come in and, and they, 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 they've, they've already built businesses. So they will tell you what you need to do to get to the next stage. Um, so, you know, we'd always done that anyway. So I kind of figured that, that the best way for me to accelerate was to find someone who was further ahead of me and get them to mentor me. So that, that's what I did. I, I had a mentor for about a year. And I think we identified very quickly that flipping properties was fine and it made, you know, good chunks of capital, but it didn't, you know, suddenly you haven't got a salary. 
So if you haven't got a salary anymore, you need to get your passive income up to a, a certain amount. And so we you know, identified high cash flowing strategies. And at the time, I did a lot of research into the HMO market, which of course at the time, uh, and found that I, I, you know, I could see that it, it just didn't seem like there was a lot of innovation in it. And this is going back what four or five years anyway. And I felt that there was something that I could do to disrupt the market and kind of uh, raise the game. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, flipping, like you said, was bringing in chunky money, which it does. And I think for anyone listening, if flipping is your main strategy, I think you have to kind of also realize what Stuart said is that, yeah, you're getting chunks of money, but there's nothing sort of monthly or, or kind of paying the bills, you know, passively as such. So you got into HMOs. I mean, what was... You said there was no innovation or anything special, but was there kind of an existing HMO market in the southeast in Brighton? Yes. Oh, sorry. No, let's say so. The I I saw it as an area that was ripe for innovation. There was, I mean, the the, the HMO market's been evolving for for many many years, so that that had already been happening. But I felt that there was opportunity to um, create some sub niches or to 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 innovate further. I could see that it was a market that 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 was about to go through a lot more change, and obviously, as as we now know, that we we, we were about to go through a step change. And I I was just you know I I think it, a lot of the, these things are about timing. They're about sp- spotting waves. They're about spotting um, you know these um, changes that are going to happen and being ahead of the curve. And if you innovate, and you're ahead of the curve, then you'll you know you're that's that's going to be good for you, your brand and your business and exposure and everything. And uh, for me, it was all about timing and spotting and taking a bit of a risk to um, uh, to kind of like you know uh, put a flag in the sand and, and say right, I'm gonna I'm gonna really focus on innovating here. Yeah. Okay. And then so tell me about your first HMO deal. Like, you know, where was it? What is it? What kind of figures was it producing or, or did it produce? Um, I think one of my first HMO deals was, was in Eastbourne, which is further along the, the, um, the coast. And uh, that was a JV project. And, you know, we, we probably made every mistake under the sun on, the, on that project. Uh, we underestimated the build. We, uh, in fact, actually, we, we, did, uh, we did finish the refurb ahead of schedule so you could argue well that's great that's great positive but then what we found was we we didn't we didn't um allow for the six month rule so of course we you know i think we were done by month four and then of course we could remortgage and we targeted remortgaging uh to remortgage early but of course we couldn't because you had to own it for six months the other thing that we made again a classic mistake we we we, we thought we were going to get the refurb done so quickly that we when we did the bridging we only asked for a short term now, of course, bear in mind, it would have cost us zero money to just ask for that term to be longer. Uh, and of course, you know, if you ask for a really short term, of course, they're going to give it to you a short term. And then, of course, the, the the penalty fee for going over that is huge. So within we were within days, literally within days of having some huge like 20 grand, um, you know, uh, penalty uh, because just because we very stupidly asked for, for, you know, we I think we asked for six months and we could have we could have literally said we'll have nine to twelve. But it would have, it would have made no difference at all. But so of course now, based on that experience many many years ago, I I always ask for far more in contingency of time than I actually need. Hmm. Okay. And then uh, you know what what was the the project? Was it just a normal house when you bought it? Yeah, it was a house. It was a house. It was, I think it was a three bed house. We converted it to a six. We put all on suites in, but I, again, very early, early learnings were, was around the waste, you know, how to, if you're creating a, uh, a shared house, then you're going to want to try and 
well, it, it, the market we were going for was professionals, which meant that we wanted to try and get as many um, ensuite bathrooms in as possible. And you know, that's you know, the challenge with any house where you're converting it is always it's always about the waste. The waste is always the problem. You know, the the toilet waste because of the size of the pipe, you have to really think through the the layout. So, and that's when we started to do this notion of off suites and on suites. And as I've gone, as I've as I've done stuff over the years, I've actually really embraced the idea of off suites. I think they're a really good way to, you know, adapt a building more sympathetically. Uh, and what I found is the customers really don't mind whether the bathrooms or, or their ensuite is in their room or just the very next door or just down the corridor. They don't really mind. They just don't really want to share. That's all. That's that's quite interesting because I think a lot of investors go for the ensuites for the exact reason you said, but actually. I think, you know, you're right. It, yeah, it's nice to have it in your room, but the main thing is just not sharing a bathroom with someone. It's, it's about a facility that's private. Now, you could argue there's certain areas of the country at the moment that have the banding per room. Now, at the moment, it's not it's not across the whole country. It's only certain areas. But you could argue, well, that there are, had those houses been converted in a slightly different way you could use on you could use off suites to your advantage because if you did have a council that was banding because things were self-contained by en suite you could create um uh, off suites in different locations and not be hit by the banding so Hmm. you know there's some possibilities there yeah there's definitely different different aspects of it so how much did you buy that house for oh i think it was um, um i haven't got all the numbers but i think we bought it for something like Two hundred and fifty thousand. I think we probably spent about sixty thousand, and then I think we revalued it for three hundred and forty thousand or something like that. It wasn't a huge. I mean, we recycled a large chunk, apart from about fifty thousand out of it, which was our own money that was left in. We had investor funds that were, were we raised, uh, and then they were re- recycled as part of the remortgage. Um, and I think we cash flowed out of that. I think we were. It's probably about fifteen hundred, so about seventy seven fifty cash flow each uh, per month. But of course, you know, there's lots of little things that people, you know, that you, you learn on your first project, which is, you, I guess, you kind of magically imagine that okay, that's a JV seven fifty coming to you each month. But the reality is, you're going to let the reserves build up, so you're probably not going to take any money for a while. And then once it's up, you know, you have to make a provision and allowances for maintenance and all the other stuff. So <laughs> I think, you know, in the end, we actually, I don't think we took any money for three months uh, because we, you know, the agreement was let's build this reserves up to get it to a nice good chunk. Um, and then at that point, we want it to incrementally grow anyway. So you're not going to take 750, you're probably going to take 500 each. So, you know, they're, they're little things, but, you know, it's just understanding how these numbers work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important because... You know, if, if people want really, really quick cash flow and just off one property, maybe it's better to do a rent to rent or rent to SA. But if you want to, like you said, build a reserve or, you know, maybe have, well, it'll take a bit longer to get that cash flow out. Then, of course, when you buy, conveyancing could take three months in itself. So it's definitely a longer process and it's good to share that kind of realism with people. Now, how did you take a three bed and make it into a six bed en suite? Because I think most people are picturing a three bed, which is not that spacious, but then a six bed bed all you know in room standards like did you take out the floorboards and make three floors like what did you do oh well i mean usually i mean there's there's lots of um subject in itself but there's lots of clever ways that you can you can alter and change a house i mean we're only talking houses here we're not talking commercial conversions or other stuff so a lot of the stuff that i do is either commercial conversions or it's um houses but on the subject of houses uh, assuming that you're buying a two or three or a four bed house converting it then you know, there's a number. So, for example, you've always got your your 
I personally believe that the key is always what they call the outrigger part of the building. That's the bit at the back that, that sticks out of the building. Now, you tend to usually get the kitchen in this area. The reason this is so important is because certain outrigger parts of buildings will allow you to get all of your social space in there. You know, for example, last two or three properties I've bought, the outrigger part of the building is 20 square meters. Now, that instantly means that the dining room and the lounge become two usable bedrooms. Now, if you've gained two bedrooms just on the ground floor, you gain three on the next floor, you only need one in the, in, in the loft. Also, if the outrigger is particularly big and you're in an area where you can utilize an L-shaped dormer, my most recent project in Central Hove, we've got an L-shaped dormer, which has created two rooms that are both over 14 square meters. So again, these are, I think over the years, what I've found is there's little there are little techniques to try to get more from a property, which is the difference between the property working or not. Another example is the width of the building. Uh, now, the width of the building is hugely important because if you've got multiple windows on the front and your width is wide enough, you will be able to reconfigure to get a smaller, say, eight or nine square meter room in the court alongside another room, which is probably 10 plus square meters. So I've worked out a way that I can actually create room, multiple rooms more multiple rooms on the first floor, but it's all down to the width. If the width doesn't work, then you have to revert to utilizing either the outrigger or the loft. So I've got probably two or three areas where I know if one of those areas um, is workable, I, I kind of work backwards from that and then I can get the rooms out of it. Interesting. And have you learned this through like working with an architect or just by getting involved yourself? Um, just, I think, I think the background in flipping properties really helped because I think what that, because a lot of people get thrust into the kind of the HMO world or the, you know, shared living world or property development. The reality is it, I think you have to, you have to approach it with a developer mindset because at the end of the day, you're going to buy something that's worth an awful lot of money and you're going to want to hit a target of a value or a GDV. And the best way you can do that is about is through development is through planning uplift or planning gain. And it's about kind of adding, 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 you know, adding value and adding uh, and, and reconfiguring. So, utilizing everything that you can in that field is where you're going to make your biggest financial gains. And so all I've really done is try to work out all the clever ways of being able to kind of um, reconfigure and spot opportunities in buildings. Mm, very interesting. So we go from that HMO to, I guess, where we are today in terms of your portfolios. So we're in May 2019. What does your portfolio look like right now? Uh, what the, what as in, how is it split? I mean, it's, I've, uh, across properties or how many properties or uh, kind is mainly mainly co-living uh, I know we haven't talked about that yet but obviously you know a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is about uh, creating or the next generation of shared living so I've got most of my portfolio is in co-living and also in hotels as well so uh, many few years ago I looked to diversify a little bit out of the just the co-living sector and then we've probably got two hotels as well as our co-living portfolio mm, okay and then so let's let's talk about co-living so co-living is is kind of a, a nice word and I think you know at their core you know regulatory wise they're called HMOs right but what makes you know co-living different from a bog standard HMO well when the I think one thing to mention about HMOs is as you mentioned, HMOs is a technical term. It's a, it's a legal technical term that we use for getting a license. It's not a customer-centric term. So 
the customer themselves has no they don't search for a hmo they don't really know what a hmo is the only people that use it really is the landlords and ourselves so we've kind of given it this name now we've given it this name and then we've pushed this name out into the into the public but the reality is you know it's not it's just not a public facing name now what co-living has come out of the back of co-working co-working is a you know a big kind of um a kind of a wave that came out the back of america you know co-working was already in the uk it's just that it wasn't done in the way you know serviced office sector the serviced office sector is now now the big buzzword is is, is obviously co co-working so co-living is kind of swept over from the kind of us um but ultimately, it's a customer-centric uh, terminology. And what you're seeing in the US um, is, you know, you're seeing a lot of tech companies, a lot of design thinking, a lot of, a lot of innovation, where they're basically applying this this thinking into the property sector. And so, of course, you know, everything is customer-centric. So, co-living simply means shared living. It's just the facilities, the the type of products, whether you know what what you're doing to create this experience, it, it represents a kind of new generation or a new product that's available to the market, which is you know completely natural. It would stand to reason that the traditional shared living market would go through many iterations, a bit like bedsits. You know, bedsits were all the rage. Now, of course, everyone hates bedsits, but the, the point is that the terminology and the 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 type and the quality. Uh, of the product is always going to be changing in any subsection of the market. So co-living just represents this new generation of kind of shared living, which has a real focus on community. It has a focus on amenity. It has a focus on a new type of customer, the millennial customer and the wider audience, which require and demand a completely different uh, experience. Mm, okay. And when it comes to like co-living, I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone, but looking at your your designs, I don't know what the word is to describe them because they've got a lot of wood panelling on, they're kind of open brick. It's kind of, I want to say slightly industrial kind of yeah. style. <clears throat> what made you choose this style in particular? Um, well, we when I first started doing the, the shared living projects, at the time, many, many years ago, it, I looked around at everything that was on the market and, you know, I didn't, I didn't create the industrial um, uh, kind of theme or, or, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the trend. I was just ahead of the, sh- I was ahead of the curve. That was all I saw. There was an opportunity to do something different. I saw that I could take a more stripped back raw approach that, you know, and ultimately I was thinking more specifically about the area that I live in because I knew that in Brighton, uh, something that was very um, on trend, something that was designed uh, in a, to to kind of imitate areas where or locations where millennials would hang out, would be uh, a completely different product that was on market, and it would you know it would get a lot of attention, and it would lead to me becoming more oversubscribed. So all I all I did was I tried to create a completely different product that was unique uh, to market. Uh, that I could roll out um, to kind of like like create my own niche. So you know it was it's it was very stripped back. It was very natural materials, and of course the other thing is it it, it uses biophilic uh, um, design principles. So this is about bringing nature closer to the customer through, for example, urban materials, through natural materials, through recycled, upcycled materials. 
um, use of natural light, use of nature, use of um, imitations of nature, all of those things are kind of design principles that, that, that are kind of found their way into there. I mean, when we design the stuff that you, you, you see or, or, you know, your, your, your listeners will, you know, look at, you know, we wanted it to be, um, we wanted it to be very unique. We wanted it to have an edge. We didn't want it to be mainstream. I've never designed any of the stuff that you see to be, to be mainstream. And in fact, as soon as something starts becoming mainstream, I just, I just niche off and raise the bar and go and go and do something else. But we, we designed it because we wanted to create a product that we knew our customers would not only love, but they would, they would follow the brand because ultimately we were building a brand and then, and the customers were following the brand because they loved the work that you're doing. Mm. Um, you know, all the kind of designs you've done cost a bit more than let's say a really bog standard kind of white wall, gray skirting board, HMO with the kind of normal furniture. Now, have you found that spending this extra money and maybe some extra time has has made you oversubscribed, has given you extra room rates and got you a lot more attention? Well, I've, I've never... I've never done the whole kind of like the it's like the magnolia plain wall. You know, I've never I've never done any of that. I guess so. You know, the refurbs have only ever been, you know, every, every single one of my projects going all the way back to the first, you know, shared living project have all been exactly the same. So, so what I have done along the way is I've refined the process. So I've refined the materials, I've refined all the bespoke work that we do, and I've driven the cost down. So what may cost other people more money to do, obviously gradually over the, over time I've learned how to do things, um, more bespoke things, and kind of like tweaked them along the way to drive the cost down. Now, where, for, for example, I have projects that are in Eastbourne, for example, where the ceiling value may be, say, 675 per room, then for example, my refurb might will be less than, say, somewhere in Central Brighton, where I might have 750 to 800 of room as, as the ceiling. So, my refurbs are in are, are intrinsically linked to the area, and also the ROI and the GDV. Because obviously, you know, if you know, if I'm spending, for example, I don't know, let's give an example here. Um, if I've got a refurb in Central Hove that's somewhere between 100 to 150 thousand, I know that the I know that the GDV and everything else is going to, to to kind of like stack up, and I know I'm always you know recycling. Let's have a look. Last four projects, I recycled 87% of funds, 91, 116% that was Eastbourne, and then 96% recycling. Wow, that's a really high level, and you know, getting those because valuations are another thing that investors often talk about, and you hear down valuation this, that, and the other, and it's very difficult. Do you do you think that because you've designed yours so differently and they look so incredible that they are getting higher valuations than you know the same sort of work but at a lower kind of refurb uh, look and feel? Yeah, I think it is. It is affecting the valuations because obviously I, I you know have a good old chat to the the, the valuers when they come round, <clears throat> and I'm certainly I'm certainly getting the top end of their valuations. Interestingly, I know this is only topical for right now in the market that. You know, since this, you know, obviously Brexit's now been extended, but prior to post Christmas, you know, a lot of the Rick's valuers have been instructed to, to uh, not. I wouldn't say it's downvaluing. I would say it's being pessimistic and having to find comparables. If they don't find comparables, they'll downvalue to the nearest example that they can find. And so, of course, that is probably manifesting itself to many people in in some downvalues. Now, obviously, the, a lot of the stuff I've been doing 
the the post post um, you know Christmas um, that has the values have definitely been less. So of course you know the market even in Central Brighton and Hove has been affected by it. Now luckily, uh, a lot of the stuff that we do, we always whatever the GDV is or the gross development value of what we expect i always model it in my cash flow forecast as fifty thousand pounds less than the target wow and that's quite a big undervalue in your calculation yeah it it is but it's a hell of a lot it's a lot better when you're pleasantly surprised and you've suddenly got 20 30 40 50 thousand pounds more than you expected rather than the other way around yeah exactly so i think for everyone listening if you're you know you know, you should be naturally being very conservative and undervaluing things not too much but enough in your sums you can see that Stuart does it by a pretty big amount so maybe we consider in the current market that we're in like really underestimating it a little bit more so yeah i mean obviously i'm doing it in in balance to the uh, uh to the brighton market but for example the eastbourne market i probably wouldn't need to, i could probably take say 20 30,000 off just to be pessimistic mm. okay and all, let's, if we just look at the HMOs in your portfolio, not the not the hotels, or just the co-living properties you have, how much do you think they are profiting net a month for you? Well, okay, I th- I've got a couple of examples here. I've got one example for Eastbourne and one for, for Brighton. So I'll give you the Eastbourne one first. So Eastbourne property, uh, right in the centre of uh, Eastbourne. So I paid 190000 for the building. That was a commercial shop with upper floors. Um, I spent two hundred thousand on the refurb and the and the fit out because it was. I mean, the building was absolutely shot, and uh, <laughs> I spent more money on refurbing it than I did actually on buying it. But the end valuation, uh, which we achieved, was six hundred fifty thousand. So that meant that I recycled one hundred sixteen percent of funds. That's all my money out plus I think it was about seventy or eighty thousand, which is nice. Um, and that gives me a net cash flow after all costs, uh, including management, and everything else, of about fourteen hundred a month. So that's one thousand four hundred a month and an infinite ROI. Wow, that's incredible. Why was it valued at so much higher than purchase? Because I added a well, I turned it into a, a five bed co living, a two bed flat, and a small office shop, all of which were rented out. Uh, prior to the um, valuation. Awesome. And how did you find that deal? Was that through an estate agent? Yeah, it was just an estate agent deal. Yeah, it was just, mm. I mean, it was an ugly duckling. I mean, it, it did, uh, I mean, it was shocking state. <laughs> it was, it was really bad. There was probably, a, and also the other thing, you know, small little tip as well is, you know, commercial conversions, uh, you need to make sure you've got a very size, oh, the rewards are good, very, very good, but you need a sizable contingency. You know, the whole back of the building was basically we had to underpin and rebuild the back of the building. It was, you know, there's always, there's always something on a commercial version that you will discover, which is a big chunk. Um, and, you know, I, I always allow 20% for all of my, you know, projects but of contingency. But this one, again, you know, it did have a sizable amount of extra reefer. But, of course, the GDV was brilliant. Yeah, no, definitely. And then to pull out that much money... You know, in a, in a place like the southeast, where a lot of I guess the thought about this this kind of areas are they expensive. You're not going to be able to pull out your cash. You added yeah. so much value and fixed so many of the problems that you could. So maybe there's there's a strategy in doing that, right? Not necessarily. Yeah, buying... I mean that that was a that was a commercial valuation as well. So I mean because and it's guaranteed a commercial valuation because it's mixed use. 
So it's, I mean, I think of those as hybrid developments and, you know, people say, you know, there's obviously single lets aren't as attractive. Well, they are if you can build them into other projects. So that, that was the Eastbourne project. And then the, I've got another one, which was Central Hove. This is, and the Hove is right next to Brighton. I bought the project for 372000 which is a very good price for, for this area. Um, I think it was a, I think it was a three bed, turned it to a six. Um, spent 125000 on refurb and fit out. Got revalued at 600000 um, And then I recycled 96% of my funds. And that gives me a net um, cash flow per calendar month of 1950 So just shy of 2000 net um, after all costs a month and an ROI of, I think, it's 248%. Because... Wow. So... You know these these deals again. Are they are they generally speaking actually in your portfolio? Have they all come through estate agents? Do you do any direct to vendor or anything else? Yeah, I do do some direct to vendor as well. But yeah, some some of them are. I mean, a lot of them are are through kind of contacts that I know. So over the years, I've kind of built up contacts when you know if I you know get the phone call or get the nod on something, try and do a deal. A lot of my stuff is probate, so a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that I do is off market and it's prior. It may uh, yeah, it's prior to it going on market for a lot of it. And how do people get access to probate properties off market? Well, um, a lot of it's about who you know. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's all about the co- you know the contacts you've got. So if you know, I know a lot of owners of estate agents, and there might be someone who's about to sell. It might be you know they don't want to be mucked around; they just want a quick sale. Um, so it's just it's all about networking, it's networking and relationships. Absolutely. Okay, and then um, so. You mentioned hotels, so a lot of people and kind of the current buzzword still is a buzzword is you know service accommodation. So hotels are potentially you know similar to that. What made you diversify into that as opposed to you know I don't know land or building or anything else? Well, so a few years ago, we so our first hotel was launched. It's been fully live for about a year now, so we've been running it as as a for about a year took about another year before that to do the acquisition acquisition phase uh, so we i mean service accommodation is a big hot hot topic at the moment um and one of the things that bugged me a little bit and you know i had holiday lets as well which i subsequently sold um but one of the things that bugged us was the notion that it was unregulated it's a completely unregulated industry and that will all change at some point soon there will be regulation just as there is in certain parts of london and elsewhere um, to restrict the whole kind of Airbnb um, non-taxed, you know, there's no business rates, health and safety isn't as as stringent, and of course the hotel industries are, are lobbying heavily to to regulate this, and so we could see that there was an opportunity to uh, move into a sector where it has the correct legal classification, and so we we just spotted a little bit of a niche that you know going back what three years ago we could see that well actually why don't we buy a standard guest house b&b hotel uh we take the asset in a prime location and then we use all the latest thinking which at the time we came up the idea of a smart boutique hotel and that was a a fully self-service automated hotel with a real focus on design and technology and comfort um but it was a fully digital first you know digital uh, first kind of um uh, systemized and automated experience and so we kind of we spotted a bit a little bit of a niche there and then we uh, we we kind of spent about a year searching for the 
for the right kind of sites. And that was all direct to vendor. Um, that was all off market. And then we we did the first one, which we launched. We did went to a refurb, and then we launched about a year ago. And then the current one, which again is in Central Brighton, that is in refurbishment and probably will launch in about six months. Wow. And and how much? And so you're requiring these hotels as businesses, right? Not just as a building. Uh, you as going concerns, yeah, yeah. Okay, and how much does it cost to buy a hotel? Um, I think the first hotel we bought was about seven hundred thousand. You know, the bricks and mortar would, you know, as a, as a house asset. In, I mean, it's literally about two. I mean, you 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 could get from the front door of the uh, our hotel on One Broad Street. You could get from the front door to the Palace Pier. This is the main pier that's on the seafront. I reckon it takes you two minutes. You only have to cross two roads. And you're, you're you're literally on the front, so you you couldn't get much closer than the the, the seafront. So you know that as an asset in the future, if it moved back into Resi, which it probably wouldn't, but if it did, would be worth more than the the price we paid anyway. Wow, and you know when you how do you find hotels for sale? That's a silly question. Well, they, the the thing is, they very rarely are for sale. So we we did it the hard way. I just pretty much knocked on everyone's door. Wow, and someone turned around <laughs> so, and said, "Actually, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to sell." Yeah, I literally went straight to the straight to um, all of the um, hotel owners and just tried to find if there was anyone that any of them that were thinking of uh, retiring. And the only way you do that is it was literally just uh, it just it reach out to every single hotel owner, which is what we did. Wow, and are you going to actively manage them yourself, or is it going to be very outsourced? We uh, well, we initially we had it outsourced. And the we are now bringing it in house. So very recently, we've taken over the management, and we've just started to bring on staff that will do it. And the reason for doing that is that a lot of service accommodation um, companies aren't really set up for the how quickly a hotel is moving because you've got a lot of turnover, a lot of upselling, a lot of cross selling, and you really need your own team to be cross selling and upselling to really drive the occupancy required in a hotel as opposed to sitting back and just taking some booking.com bookings as they come in. Yeah, no, it's definitely a different kettle of fish. So you also won some awards. Tell us about those. Uh, yeah, so that was at the end of um, it was the end of uh, last year where I think, uh, so I was, in on two, I was in on two categories. I was in on HMO deal of the year. Oh, so it's the Property Investors uh, Awards. So it's, a, it's a kind of nationwide uh, awards for the whole of the UK. And I was in on two categories, HMO Deal of the Year and uh, UK Property Investor of the Year, which was their main one. Um, and I was, uh, I was, well, I was very surprised that I actually came away with both of the awards, which was, which was, I wasn't expecting. I mean, you know, I went out there and, you know, cause pre- previous winners have been, I think there's Michael Dong and Martin Skinner, all, you know, guys doing amazing things in, in London. And so, of course, you know, obviously I was, I thought, well, you know, it's, it's a bit of a different league there, but I'll, uh, I will, of course, you know, put, I'll put the, the work forward and see. And um, uh, little, uh, you know, unbeknownst to myself, you know, what they really uh, uh, focused on or, you know, what they really, uh, you know, liked was the not only the innovation that we've driven, but the fact that we've been able to, in our own part, drive change in the industry, which is, you know, the ultimate accolade to be I guess is just to be recognized for the hard work that you've done because a lot of a lot of you know and I'm sure there's been many other people that listening to this that that that, you know you put your head down you work hard you try and do the absolute best you can but ultimately you don't really heavily shout about 
what you're doing and, and when you kind of get some recognition you realize wow actually we are driving we've driven a lot of change here and you know we should be proud of what we've what we've done yeah absolutely i think it gives you a chance to kind of step back and say yeah wow we, we actually did that because sometimes you're so busy working on and in the business that you don't think oh we've just achieved something pretty awesome so you know totally totally get where you're coming from it's it's a, it's a nice thing and also the other thing I think, which you know, to, as, a, as a kind of learning from that is that it really shows that if you're coming into the market, if you're kind of thinking of moving into the shared living market, HMO market, or any of that, you can just come into the market. You can, you know, you can, you know, you can imitate what other people are doing, or you can, you know, you. But if you're if you're thinking long term, it does mean that anyone has the has the ability, if they really focus onto what they're doing. And they focus on innovation. They focus on trying to kind of drive change. Anyone can actually do it, and you don't have to. You don't. You're not just contributing to the market. You can actively change the market. You've only got to look at the the HMO market in the last two to three years to see how much it's changed. What became the great thing about disruption is once you start it, the ripples go out. And as soon as the ripples start to go out, it's it's a bit like BlackBerry and Apple. BlackBerry did not keep up. They didn't innovate. They didn't keep up. And then they got superseded. And I think that if you if you if you focus on creating a great product, if you focus on on um, you know uh, trying to make sure your product is the very best it can can be, then that's always going to put you at the front of the market. And that's a you know that's that's something that everyone should be doing because the thing is the market has changed. Now this market has changed. You've got and and you're buying an asset that you ultimately are hoping that people are going to be renting. The minute you finished it and you put it on the market, you're then you're then you're then at the kind of mercy of almost standard product design principles, which is right. I've put it, I've put the product out there, and I'm hoping people are going to buy. So at that point, you need to know that okay, right, is is my brand strong enough? Is you know is my product strong enough? Have I really understood what the customers want? All of those things, basic kind of print, uh, product design principles, become hugely important once a market starts to become more active. Absolutely. Solid advice there. And I think that is so important. You know, it's, it's easy enough to design a co-living space or a buy-to-let that's kind of basic. And look, sometimes, you know, if your market is that, then, it, you know, it, it can work. But like you said, you know, looking at the pictures of your co-living spaces, you just think, wow, you just think that's that's a HMO? That's known as a HMO? Well, like, I mean, because... you know, I've, I, I used to live in some kind of uh, HMOs when I when I was when I was kind of when I early years in in Brighton and Hove, we, we you know used to, some of them were I don't even think they were licensed some of them to be honest, but the um, I remember living in them and um, you know I remember I remember six or six you know, six of us all sharing one shower room. It literally had one shower room, and you can imagine the the queue of people. If you missed your slot, if you missed your slot, you might as well go and have breakfast and wait for 20, 30 minutes because you're not getting in there for a while. So you know, I but the but, but the social element was brilliant, and the only downside really was sharing bathrooms. So you know, when you've kind of experienced it and kind of been through it, you realise actually it is it is a you know, uh, it is a great social environment to be in, um, and it's just about understanding that you know what well, the customers are changing. You know, so just as we're you know talk about the markets changing, you know the customer themselves are changing, and you know what they they they've got such a focus now on experience. They've you know I'll give you a prime example. You know I've got two a couple of people that just recently moved into a couple of our properties. Classic scenario where they've been renting in Central Brighton. They've been paying 
thousand pounds for a one bed flat plus bills thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred and then so one of them um a girl fiona she is moving into one pro- property she's actually gone into quite a small room but it's got access to a garden and amazing social spaces but so she so her outgoings have gone from 1400 1350 to 1400 a month and they've dropped down to 650 to 700 i mean so the disposable income that that's going to give her is phenomenal she has the ability now to save to potentially go for deposit and all the other stuff so i think that you know what we what we are offering people in the shared living world is is about a um, it's a price point it's you know where it's, it's, it's the stages that the people are in their lives and uh, you know they haven't settled down into a relationship yet you know they're, they're, they're young professionals they they don't want they want a no bills in experience they don't want to be tied in they want to be able to try and retain as much disposable income as possible so they can focus on experiences mm. Okay, cool. And you know, earlier on, you mentioned you were JVing with some investors. Like, how? So obviously, right now, I think for you, you have an amazing portfolio. You have pictures. You have a website. You have a brand, and you're kind of known. So, for you to get investment, maybe it's not as difficult as it was when you first started, or for someone who doesn't have this. So, my question is: If you haven't got a portfolio like you do, maybe someone has one or two buy to lets. Nothing, you know, incredible to look at. How can they find investors? Okay, so if you're starting, if you're starting out from the start, you haven't, you have, I mean, initially, if you're just trying to get your first project, let's say project one or two, you probably want to utilize a strategy to get the first project over the line. Because as soon as you get the first project over the line, that is effectively your case study for ongoing investments. Now, chances are, a lot of people that you know, will have money sitting in bank accounts earning not very much in interest. Now, chances are you probably never, or most people don't. Most people don't like asking for money, or they, or they feel that they are asking for money rather than, let's say, offering an opportunity. Now, most of the people that I speak to that kind of struggle to find kind of investors, it's usually um, a problem with probably wanting to to, to actually uh, push out, you know, some opportunities to people. You know, have they really asked? Have, you, have they really phoned and or called every single person they know to say? Look, for example, I'm working on this project that's coming up. It's, you know, I'm going to be working with, I don't know, bridging. So I'm going to be paying, you know, a higher rate of return. Uh, you know, they might be getting half a percent in the bank, but you might be able to pay 6%, 8%, 9%, 10%. Um, and so you can offer a, a much higher rate. And obviously, I'd much rather the that interest goes to my friends and family and colleagues than I would do it goes to a bridging company. Um, so... Obviously, what you will probably find, and it's the way that I, I found, is I, I started with some of my own money, but I ran out very quickly. And so what I did is I started to initially reach out to your family and friends. So start with a circle of people who know you. So they already trust you. They know you. That that allows you to just start. And at that point, you can gradually move further out. Now, where you move further out, you get to your friends of friends, and they've heard of you, but they haven't met you that well. And then then you've got people who via social media and and then of course you know obviously that will take longer to um, build up a relationship but ultimately I think you have to start with the kind of people that that know you and trust you initially and then gradually and it's not a quick process and there's no way of speeding this up but you just need to build credibility uh, you need to focus uh, obviously on the fact that you know, it's, it's building trust and building a relationship with with, uh, with the right people 
and um, just gradually kind of making sure that what you're doing is you're you're telling everyone what you do because ultimately if your social channel is just you know for example about you know what you're doing on the weekend uh, no one may even know that you're in property they might not even know you're doing property development uh, so ultimately I think when I started I made sure that you know I shouted about everything I was doing and as far and then people you know, gradually along the way people go oh that's what you're doing now okay right okay and then gradually it's like no this is my business this is this is what we do you know we we work on these property developments every year you know we work with investors we give them amazing returns and gradually people start to approach you to say you know gradually people you know people who you would not have thought have money will approach you and eventually say actually I've, I've got some cash that's not doing anything or I've got an inheritance or I've got this or and you know what what could you tell me a bit more and then you have a coffee just just get to know them and just build a relationship with people it's you know it is a, I, I do it a, in a very kind of slow way but I find that it builds better relationships yeah no I like your approach and I think that kind of subtle way of just showing and documenting what you're doing is going to bring that kind of attention i've experienced it people who you know i went to high school with didn't know what they're doing or, or what they're up to message me instagram and say hey uh, you know what if i had this much money what what could you do with it and i said oh cool Let, let's have a chat and like you said you don't expect it sometimes it's nice no and also you know some of some of these conversations are probably not going to go anywhere but that doesn't really matter because actually the better ultimately i think to raise to raise private uh, investor finance um, you have to go outside your comfort zone. One of the other things that I do, uh, as I gradually got better at, at raising um, finance, I did more public speaking. And that was a game changer, a massive game changer. I mean, most people probably wouldn't like public speaking. Mean, even I, I really didn't particularly like public speaking. In my previous role was um, uh, when I used to have to pitch, you know, to as a, as a company director, when I'd go to pitch our company, I'd have to pitch to... You know, usually boards of I don't know 20, 20 plus people, but that's that was about it as on scale. But then I think public speaking was very different because what it really did is you know I mean because you're told to go out there and network and network with as many people as possible. But I think I realised very early on it's, it's if you were the expert, if you were the person that people were there to listen to, then that's going to make it a hell of a lot easier for you to build relationships and get to know people and network. And so I just embraced public speaking and, you know, it was difficult and it was painful to start with, but you know, the nerves, the nerves go. And then once the nerves go, you, you, you don't get nerves at all. And you, you simply focus on, you know, creating a great talk, inspiring people. And then, and that, that really helps with all your marketing and your exposure and credibility and it's self-fulfilling. You know, you, you have to, you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to go out of your, out of your comfort zone and you just have to, Except that you know, if you're if you're in this industry, you've got to really kind of um, if you want to raise private investor finance, you've got to uh, you've got to step outside that comfort. Absolutely, and I think you know that position of influence influencer can all you know can be done via social media as well. You know, if you really don't like public speaking, you you know, I think public speaking is one of the best ways to do it. But social media is another great way that you can do it kind of comfortably as such. So, um, Stuart, what? What are your thoughts on the co-living market in your area? So the co-living market in the area that I that I uh, that I live in, obviously the southeast, is you know it, it, even in Brighton and Hove, it was a very mature market. It had been there for a long time, but in Brighton and Hove, the you know the asset you know the assets are very expensive. It's very difficult. Uh, very few people do uh, co-living in. 
Brighton just because it's so diff- it's difficult and it's um, expensive. You know, whereas Eastbourne and, and Worthing and, and you know um, other areas along the coast are obviously the entry the entry access is is a lot easier. I deliberately chose the most difficult location because I know that, uh, or you know, I knew that that I would get the highest rewards from choosing the most difficult route because I I went down the route that least people were going because it was so difficult. And I just assumed that I could focus on doing that better so that I could make it work in a in a in a difficult market. So that's why I focused mainly on Brighton Hope because they, you know it was the area that I was most passionate about. So I wanted to make the most difference there. But the market itself was was very mature, but a lot of the stock was very substandard. Um, and a lot of the people who own the stock are a lot of landlords sitting very comfortably um, with um, reasonably low grade products that they don't really need to upgrade. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, so you know, people if you're looking for an area to invest in, maybe look for one that you know, like like Stuart said earlier on, is rife you know for innovation. It needs some sort of change. You know, maybe there's something you can bring to it that isn't already there. And you might look at an area and say, oh, it's saturated. It's this, that, and the other. But it could be saturated with crap. So if you come in and bring something amazing, you know, you can be that change and get recognised. Like Stuart. Has. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I like the fact you've raised that, actually. There, there is a lot of talk of saturation. There is a lot of talk of saturation. The, now, I think where that's more important is, is, is there may well be a lot of HMOs, as you described, but that does not mean that the, um, uh, the products are all the same. The perfect analogy that I would give for this would be when the mobile phone market was saturated. There was, you know, do you remember the flip phones, the Motorola's? Do you remember the ones you used to get the flips, the sliders, all that kind of stuff? And it, it was all, it was all happening, you know. You and then we got color. Do you remember the first time we got color on one of the screens? And it, you know that market, it, it, you know, there was, there was lots of players in there. And then all of a sudden, Apple came along. And they completely game changed the market. They changed the technology. They changed the software. Because at that point, you know, suddenly they made the software look like the old-fashioned teletext. You know, it's, it's, you know, they they completely changed the entire playing field. Now that was a saturated market, but they came along and they basically created something new, and that basically put them at the, at the forefront of that market. So I don't think, as you, as you identified before, I don't think this with saturation is is about is saturation of a certain type of, uh, of, of, of of property, but that doesn't mean there's a saturation of a of a niche of a product that you can create. Uh, so I think it's just about finding the areas that ultimately stack up financially. And then once you have found an area that stacks up financially, which may be on the periphery of a of a of a hot area, so if you've got an expensive area, you you know look on the periphery of it, then you find the areas that stack up financially. Then you try and find a a product or, or design a product that is going to almost insulate you from any kind of market activity because it's highly desirable. Yeah, spot on. And now the last question before we go into the quickfire round is. Is there a resource platform, a bit of technology that you just can't live without? Um, I would say the yeah, it's probably it's probably the Google uh, G Drive or the um, you know the Google Suite because both of my previous companies we built the entire companies around the, um, the Google Suite. I mean, it was it was probably named something else back then, but we you know everything you know we used to do all our proposals on it, our business forecasting on it. Um, pitches everything everything was done on it um, and everyone could 
connect in real time. We could edit in real time. We could share it. We, it, yeah, we, we built the entire businesses off it. And I've done exactly the same thing with my property businesses where, you know, all of the file management, file structure and everything is all on Google. And then obviously the spreadsheets, the, the you know, the, the documents and the presentations, it, everything can be hung from the same uh, technology. And then I use Wonderlist and a few other things that, that kind of tie into it. But yeah, the I mean, I would be lost without the Google suite. <laughs> it is an awesome set of tools. So now we're in the quick fire round to so short snappy answers to these ones for all the listeners. So the first one is, what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made? Um, state number one, trying to do everything yourself. Uh, being a bit, when you, you know, if you're a control freak, you 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 know, you want to do everything yourself. You have to learn to delegate and and get you know people in to to, to help you. Um, so in the early days, I did way too much stuff myself. Um, state number two, I think the balance of the pipeline of uh, deals and investment. So there's a classic thing where you focus more on the investors and then suddenly you've got less deals or you didn't focus on the pipeline and suddenly your pipeline's got less. I think um, that's something that I've been guilty on over the years. I'll, I'll, I'll laser focus, which is brilliant to be able to laser focus, but not if you take your eye off the ball on something else. So that's a, you know, that's a classic thing that happens to a lot of people. Um, and then also there was a, it was a mistake I did recently. I thought you'd find it quite funny. I would um, basically, I, I, I've got an AST um, single let property that was part of a hybrid development and uh, I knew someone was going into it and I thought oh, I'll just organize it I'll do it myself and so I basically took one of the ASTs from the HMOs changed the names put it in there pushed it out got them to sign it happy days and then I think suddenly, suddenly the, the tenant calls me back and says oh because yeah, obviously this is a single let the bills are not included and then the tenant calls me back and said oh, we're just about to set up all the bills but we just read the AST and it says all the bills are included <laughs> I was like, oh my god Uh-oh. oh my god <laughs> so luckily luckily i convinced them that it was a mistake and it and they based they both signed the new asts but there was a moment i was just like oh no what have i done <laughs> those small things they wow yeah, small okay. things yeah yeah and all bills yeah that would have been they wouldn't have been much profit after that. yeah um, yeah what are your top three tips for people who are new in property um, first tip, tip number one, build a brand. Um, I think Luke Spikes also talks about this as well, which is, you know, we're both in agreement, which is, you know, if you want to raise investment, build a brand. You know, if you want to um, find new, new properties, build a brand. If you want to find new customers, um, build a brand. Ultimately, a brand has to sit behind you because you're built, you know, the brand is almost, uh, it, it, well, your brand contains your mission, your values and everything else. And so building a what I call a kind of like a brand, it's like a brand ecosystem, if you like, around you. That's, you know, it's hugely important. Okay, uh, talk number two, understand your customer. A lot of people move into the market, right, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do a shared living, I'll do a HMO. You know, you have to really understand well, who, who is your customer? Who, who is it you're, you're, you know, you're, you're selling to? What is it that they want? A lot of, you know, a lot of, um, landlords will do things you know spend a lot of money on a refurb but ultimately they've never ever spoken to the customer can you imagine in the in the product design world building a product where there's <laughs> never been any customer research <clears throat> sounds like would, a few of the crazy startups you see right now but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you of course you know so yeah i think listen and understand to your customer the minute you've got at least one project under your belt really speak to the people that are in there just sit down and and and, and 
and listen to what they have to say about things they do and don't like and everything else and, and build that into your product cycle of what you're designing. Um, and then final top tip is focus on creating a great product. And you can do that at any budget level. doesn't matter what the budget level is. Still focus on creating a great product so you're selling an experience. Mm. Okay. Awesome. I love that. And finally, what are your top three goals for the future? So it could be personal, could be focused on property, anything. Um, I think the – I'd like to apply the same design thinking that's, that we're applying – at the moment we're applying into the hotel sector and the, the kind of shared living sector. I would like to apply that into the new build sector. So I'd like to kind of like apply that into kind of like whether that's homes, retirements, or mixed-use kind of hybrid developments. I'd like to apply some of that design thinking into a few other sectors, probably in the, in, in the kind of new build area. And that probably ties into goal number two, which is what we're doing now, which is slowly kind of like moving towards the kind of build to rent sector um, where we're able to offer more, more on the well-being, more on the package, more on the facilities and more on the whole kind of living experience and a wider community. Um, and then finally, goal number three is to maintain a work-life balance. I, what, what I have at the moment is I have a very nice work-life balance where, where I, you know, I get to see my family a lot. I see my daughter a lot, and um, any of the projects that I'm working on, it's about trying to maintain that I, that I, that doesn't minimise because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, financial freedom is really about how you spend your time. You know, one of the things that I've I've never really focused on volume. I've focused on quality and 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 what we do over for example you know i'm going to target a thousand units in the next 12 months i could target a thousand units in the next 12 months but i'm not going to see my family and ultimately if you've got the returns that you need already you ultimately just just i've just followed this mantra which is to just work on interesting projects in places that you're passionate about with people that you want to spend time with um and and choose how you spend your time yeah i love that Awesome. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the Test Talks podcast. There's a lot of value in here. And when people see your designs, if they haven't already, they're definitely going to understand what we're talking about a lot better. Um, so if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to do it? Yeah, my website is uh, www.co-livingspaces.co.uk. Um, obviously, any communication through that, you'll be able to get through to us. Uh, you can find me, Stuart Scott, um, on Facebook also on Instagram under co-living spaces and also if you want to see the hotel work that we're doing uh, one of the hotels is broad uh, one broad street so if you search on uh, one one broad street brighton uh, you should come out on top of the search awesome Stuart thank you so much no problem. if you like this podcast connect with Tej on Facebook LinkedIn and YouTube for more great content <laughs>